and to look at the passage that we're going to study this morning. Uh, there's an old saying that tells us that those who don't remember the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. Um, along similar lines, some people will define an expert as someone who recognizes his mistakes when they make them again. Yeah. Um, many of us, we can relate to this idea. Um, we, most of us, we don't remember the mistakes of our past well enough to avoid making them again. But they start looking awfully familiar as we've made them for the second or the third or even the hundredth time. Um, and whether it's measuring twice before cutting or, or failing to be consistent as we discipline our children, we all, all of us here, we have those areas in our lives uh, where we live out the saying, the only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. In that, we have a great deal in common with the ancient Israelites. They consistently, they consistently, they failed to learn from their experiences. And today, we're going to pick up their story um, as they're very near to the end of their wilderness wanderings. Uh, Forty years after they were liberated from slavery in Egypt, and what had they learned? What did they learn in the course of those 40 years? Well, the sad answer is, at least for an older generation, they didn't learn virtually anything. Uh, the failure to learn that we're going to see, it's highlighted by the fact that the event in Numbers 20, um, where there's this miraculous provision of water um, from a rock, is a mirror image of a similar event that had taken place in the very first year of their wanderings in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, and at that first occasion, that first time this happened, it was the wilderness of sin. The people, they quarreled with Moses. They put the Lord to the test because, well, there was no water to drink and they were thirsty. They accused Moses of bringing them as a people out of Egypt simply to let them die of thirst. And on that occasion, God told Moses, bring the people, take them out to the rock that's located at Horeb, strike the rock there, and water is going to flow out. The people will drink, and everybody will be happy, and there'll be much rejoicing. And Moses, he did exactly that. He did exactly what the Lord told him to do. And the needs of the people, they were met at that time. And that just helps us to see what was still the same and what was new some 40 years later. The problem, the people's problem with Moses was the same on the surface. But now that problem is amplified by all of their other grumbles and complaints. Even though the problem for the people was, again, the lack of water, the complaint, it was far more wide-ranging than that. Uh, there's actually a term for this in counseling. It's called gunny sacking. Anybody have ever heard that word, gunny sacking? It's a real word. I looked it up. Um, it's when, example, it's when a husband uh, makes his wife angry by not picking up his socks uh, when she's been asking him to do it every single day for the past 10 years. Or maybe the wife, she was supposed to pick up um, coffee creamer at the grocery store and she forgot. And once that argument starts... Once that battle begins, instead of focusing on the socks or the forgotten coffee creamer, all kinds of unresolved complaints come out. One or even both of the spouses, they flood each other with every single one of his or her failings that, that they've been carefully cataloging uh, over the last six months or even six years from the time that maybe she backed into the garage door trying to get out of the house, or his habit of not putting the lid back on the milk. 
And the result, what happens is instead of a limited argument over a simple minor issue, this couple, they end up with a full-scale war. Because now they're dealing with six months, six years, ten years worth of issues all at once. And in this case, the Israelites, their real problem, it was that they had nothing to drink. That was the problem that's happening right at the moment. But once that complaint department, once it was open for business, everything and anything, it became fair game. They repeated the initial complaint. The first complaint that they made to Moses that, hey, you brought us out of Egypt, um, you brought them and their livestock out into this wilderness, and you brought us out here so we could die. But now there's an added edge. Now this complaint, this anger, this animosity, it's not just directed at Moses. It's at Moses and Aaron. So I'm going to pray, and then I want us to work through this text in Numbers chapter 20 together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have this brand new year uh, to come together as your people, to worship together, um, and just come closer to you. And my prayer this year is, rather than repeating mistakes of the past, uh, whether it's the, the failures that we've had, the shortcomings, that, Lord, we seek in this new year, in 2022, to live a life that glorifies you, that we to live a life that draws others to your Son, Jesus, and that we live in a way that's worthy of what we've been called to. Lord, help us as we study this text, uh, open our hearts and our minds to it so that we can learn an important lesson that we need to hear today. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So Numbers chapter 20, starting in the second verse, we're just going to read through verse 5 right now. It says, Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water for us to drink. First thing that we're going to look at is the complaint of the people. Let's look at the complaint of the people. Now, the, their complaint, it has a familiar ring to it because it's a similar complaint that was made in Numbers 16. Back in Numbers 16, because you've all read this book, right? Back in Numbers 16, there's a couple of ringleaders and about 250 men. They questioned how well Moses was leading the people. And Moses, he says, okay, guys, let's come before God tomorrow morning, and we're going to see who's supposed to lead the people and this is how they answered. They said, uh-uh, we're not coming. Isn't it enough that you yanked us out of the land flowing with milk and honey so that you could just kill us in this wilderness? And now you keep trying to boss us around. Face it, Moses, you haven't produced. You haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. You haven't given us the promised inheritance of fields and vineyards. You'd have to poke our eyes out to keep us from seeing what's going on. Forget it. We're not coming. Well, God made a major point about this rebellion. The leaders, they were swallowed up by the earth, and the remaining 250 insurgents, they were burnt up by lightning. 
didn't turn out too well for them. And in our passage, in spite of God's grace to them, they said, they're declaring that they would have rather died with those, those people who were killed, who were rebelled against God. And what they're doing is the people, they're blaming, they're blaming Moses and Aaron for the consequences of their own actions, of their own choices. In chapter 14, they chose to believe the spies' bad report concerning the promised land. They said, we're not going in, you can't make us, not happening. They did that despite the positive evidence that those spies had brought back to them. And now uh, they're saying, Moses and Aaron, you've brought us out of Egypt to an evil place. You've brought us to this horrible place. The same word the spies had used to characterize the promised land. (laughs) Do you see the problem? The people, they're frustrated. They're frustrated because the wilderness, there was no grain, there's no vines, there's no fig trees, there's no pomegranates. And remember, those are the very fruit the spies had brought back from the promised land, that brought back from Canaan. Basically, what the people are doing are blaming Moses and Aaron because the wilderness, the desert, wasn't like the promised land the people refused to enter 40 years ago. And there's two familiar patterns of sin in their complaint, and their problems for us as well. First, they're catastrophizing. They start catastrophizing, and that just means that, that what we're doing is presenting our situation as far worse than it really is. Um, what, think of it. What, was their situation in the wilderness really a fate worse than death by fire? I don't think so. They, have been, they might have been thirsty. They might have been missing some of their favorite foods, but the Lord had supplied those needs in the past, and He could do it again. They weren't really as bad off as they were making it out to be. And often neither were we. Isn't it amazing how full of worry we can be when we're still healthy, when we're surrounded by a family that loves us, that we have a roof over our head, that we have food in our refrigerator? And if we lack anything, if there's anything lacking in our lives, is it too hard for God to supply what we really need? And instead of catastrophizing and anticipating the worst, we need to take our concerns to Him and trust in His goodness and His power to provide us in any situation. See, there is the complaint of the people. And next, we see the consequences of of our choices. We see the consequences of our choices. That's why we sometimes recognize the truth. Um... We're, we, we, we know He's able to provide for our needs, so what do we do? We start shifting the blame. And we ask Him why He doesn't keep us out of those times of difficulty, why He doesn't keep us out of those struggles in, in the first place. And one answer, one answer that we don't want to face up to is that we may be there because of the consequences of our own choices. We know that God is in control of all things, and sometimes God is going to let us suffer the consequences of our own sinfulness so we might learn something of the true impact of sin in our lives. And when that happens, um, though, instead of repenting and accepting the responsibility for our actions, we often exhibit 
the fact that our hearts, that our hearts have this blame-retardant coating. Never mind what I did. This problem, it, it has to be somebody else's fault. Lord, how could you let me end up in this terrible situation? Even though the situation that we're in is exactly where our own decisions and actions have logically led us. And that's a trend that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The woman, she blamed the serpent. The man blamed the woman. And then he even blamed God because, well, God, you gave me the woman. Instead of shifting that blame, instead of blame shifting, we need to start taking responsibility for our own actions and recognize that that whatever our present situation, He's always been far more gracious and merciful to us than we really deserve, than we could possibly deserve. And He never allows us to suffer in full measure the fate that we really deserve. And He always has a good purpose in the trials that we face, whatever those present difficulties might be. There is the complaint of the people, the consequences of our choices. And next, I want us to look at the response of Moses and Aaron. Let's look at the response of Moses and Aaron. And and here, what we see is that unlike Exodus 17, the main focus of Numbers 20, it's not the sin of the people and grumbling and complaining against God. Even though that's serious, the main focus here in Numbers 20 is the response of Moses and Aaron to the people's complaint. Now, it started well, verse 6 in chapter 20, then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. That's it. They responded in a good way. They came and, and, and showed subjection to God, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And in response to their intercession in verses 7 to 11, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded them. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. Now, Understand God's instructions, they're pretty clear and straightforward. And and the first two steps, they're followed to the letter. Moses took the staff from before the Lord, and he and Aaron, they gathered the people together just like God told them to. And that's where their obedience stopped. Instead of bringing water from the rock by speaking to it, because that's what God said, he said, Moses, speak to the rock, and water's going to come out. Just, Just say, water on. doesn't. He gives this impromptu speech to the people and strikes the rock, not once, but twice. And both of those actions, they're problematic, and together what it does, it shows us that Moses too, Moses had been caught up just like the people in that sinful mindset, even while he was seemingly doing what God told him to do. And he said to the rock, he said to them, here now you 
rebels, you rebels, shall we, me and Aaron, should we bring water for you out of this rock? And there's two big problems in that sentence. On the one hand, he's calling the people rebels, and, and you might be thinking, well, that's exactly what they are, and it's true. They're rebelling against God's leadership. But the problem, the problem is that Moses is putting himself in the place of judge to make the declaration, even though God hadn't told him or authorized him to do it. What God told him to do was to extend his mercy and his grace to the people and giving them water in a way that demonstrated clearly that the source, that the water was there because of God. And instead, Moses lifts himself up as their judge. Not only did Moses set himself as the people's judge, he also set himself and Aaron, his brother, up as their deliverers. He said, shall we? Should we, me and my brother Aaron, should we bring water out of this rock for you? And then he struck that rock twice. As if his own actions brought that water out. Who provided water from the rock? It was God, of course. But in his frustration, in Moses' frustration with the people, he was drawn into that same mindset they had, forgetting God's presence and power and acting as if everything depended on him. Moses presented himself as some kind of, I don't know, pagan magician with the ability to manipulate God to do his bidding. So in setting himself as judge and deliverer of his people, Moses was demonstrating that he had failed to learn from the past as well. See, that same self-exalting attitude was exactly what he, what he demonstrated when he first recognized the plight of his people when he lived in Pharaoh's house. If you remember at that time in Exodus, Moses, he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite. He intervenes, he kills the Egyptian, buries him. And the next day, the very next day after he had saved somebody from being beaten by an Egyptian, he saw two of his fellow Israelites, two of his own people fighting amongst themselves and tried to rebuke the one who was in the wrong. And do you know how those people responded? They said, Moses, who made you prince and judge over us. See, basically, as a youth in Egypt, Moses was trying to judge, he was trying to deliver his people in his own strength without a commission from God. In that attempt, it ended in abject and total failure. And now, all these years later, Moses again reverted he went back to that old pattern of self-trust, judging the people in his own wisdom, not God's, and trying to deliver them through his own actions with very similar results. Last thing I want us to look at is the response of God. Let's look at the response of God. Certainly Moses isn't the only one who has ever been guilty of judging people or trying to deliver people on their own, but understand there are repercussions. So how does God respond? Verses 12 and 13. 
And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me is holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Pretty steep punishment. Moses and his brother Aaron weren't allowed, they weren't permitted to enter into the promised land. They had been faithful for 40 years. After everything they'd done, after everything that they had, had endured, neither of these brothers would experience the joy of the land that God had promised his people. They had led these people, these rebellious people, for 40 years in the desert, in this wilderness. And they were so caught up in themselves that they couldn't see the truth, that God could achieve the same results with a different method. See, first time God told Moses to strike that rock. And Moses, this time, was told to speak to it. And what did he do? struck it. See, God had a better way. God had a different way than what he had used in the past, but rather than change and adapt to the present situation, they stuck to their own ways. They repeated the mistakes of the past and ultimately suffered the consequences. Today, we're starting a new year. It's the beginning of a new year that's still unwritten. And I really believe in this year that God is, is going to point us to a new and better way. Just, just like he did with Moses. And my worry, my fear, my concern is that we're going to want to go back to doing things the old way. You, you know the way we're comfortable with, the way that we're familiar with. And if we do that, just like Moses did, we're going to miss out. We're going to miss out on the opportunity of seeing what God has planned for Highland Hills. We might miss out on being a promised land church. And what I mean by that is a church that is open to a bigger and a better future. A church that's looking forward to God's promises of what, of what can and what will be. Now, I want you to understand, as we enter into a new year, there, there are three kinds of churches. There's three kinds of churches. First, there is a Plato church. Everybody likes Plato, don't you? If it comes out. You like Plato. Plato, it's fun. You play with it. You can make it into shapes and things. You can use cutouts. Um, but once it gets hard, what happens? You can't change it, can you? You can't rework it. You can't reshape it. You can't even recycle it. Because what do you... See, with, with Play-Doh, its first design, well, its first design becomes its only design. The Play-Doh church has a hard time becoming anything that it isn't or wasn't. A Plato church can get hardened 
almost to the point of being petrified. And if you ever try to change the Plato church, it's going to fall to pieces, just like that dried out, hard Plato. There's also rubber band church. See, a rubber band, it can be stretched, can it? But you can only stretch it so far. And a rubber band is pretty limited in its uses and its basic purpose. It's only meant to hold things together. I mean, you can shoot people with it, but that's not very nice. Um, You can wrap things up with it, but if you leave it to itself, it's just going to snap back to its original shape, isn't it? In a rubber band church, it can stretch to accommodate, but it can only stretch to a certain point. And anything that's going to try to squeeze its way inside to the rubber band church, anything that it's already holding together, it might just cause just a little bit too much stress, stretching the church to the breaking point. See, the rubber band church, all it wants to do is, all it's longing to do is snap back to the way it was and cry out, that's the way we've always done things. That's the way things are meant to be. Now, there's a last kind of church, and that's a silly putty church. Everybody likes silly putty. That Silly putty's even better than Play-Doh, if I can get it out. (laughs) That wouldn't have been good. Now, Silly Putty, you can get it out, you can stretch it, and it doesn't break. And even if you do break it, you can put it back together to its original composition. And if I was brave right now, I would bounce it, but Silly Putty bounces. Do you know that? I wouldn't be able to catch it because I can't chase it. Um, one of the fun things that if, you're, if you don't know what Silly Putty is, back in the day, you could take this to the newspaper or to the comics, and you could put it on there, and it would show up on the Silly Putty, and you could reproduce something. I mean, Silly Putty's fun. In a Silly Putty church, it's, it's really willing to get stretched. In fact, a Silly Putty church, it's designed to be stretched. And it all, also realize that sometimes, just to be used by God, a church has to get broken a little bit so that God can put it back together by His design. In a silly putty church, they know that there's going to be bumps, that there's going to be spills along the way, but a silly putty church has the amazing ability to bounce back. It may even bounce around on purpose, sometimes just to shake things up. A Silly Putty Church is a church that people have fun with. People come, they come to be involved in the reproduction process by letting Jesus imprint His character onto us, to imprint His character, His desires, His passion, His mission, so that we can be reproductions of Christ out in the real world. Now, I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to be 
a church. I want Highland Hills to be a church that is as pliable, as malleable, as bounce-backable as Silly Putty. But understand, we're going to be tempted. We're going to be tempted just like Moses. When the frustration, when the obstacles of trying to make our way into the future, as the church hits a setback or some kind of roadblock, We're going to be tempted to just fall back into being the church we've always been, doing church the way we've always done church, and missing out on the opportunity to be something bigger, to be something better, to be something brighter in Jesus' name. Don't let that happen. That's my challenge for the new year. Start thinking silly putty. Start thinking about how we can become the church that God wants us to be and to bring Jesus into this lost world in a new and better way. Maybe this morning that you want to be part of that. Maybe this morning you want to be part of the change, that you want to be part of a fun church, a church that's ready to be stretched that's ready to bounce and have fun. The first step in that is knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior. Knowing that what He did on a cross on Calvary, that He did it for you. That as He died, He paid the penalty for your sins. That He was buried and on that third day raised back to life. So that by faith in Him, by acknowledging Him as your Lord and Savior, that your sins that they're forgiven, that they're as, as far away as the east from the west, that you've been forgiven and redeemed and given a purpose, that you've been set loose into this world to tell people of what he did for you and what he's done for them. Maybe today you need to take that first step and acknowledge him personally as your Lord. Maybe you've never followed him in believer's baptism And you need to take that next step. That's just an act of obedience saying, Lord, I am surrendered to your will and I want to be part of your family. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change you. It doesn't wash your sins away. But it says, Lord, I'm willing to be part of your plan. Maybe you are saved today and you think, Highland Hills is where I need to be a part of, to be part of this church family. You can do that as well. Take the moment this morning to say, Lord, I just want to be part of Highland Hills, and I want to support their mission to reach this world with the gospel. And if you are a member at Highland Hills, I encourage you, think silly putty. Have fun and serve him gladly, happily, ready to reach this world and ready to do new things and different things, saying, understanding that God will use new ways maybe we've never even thought of to reach people in His name. As the worship team comes this morning, I encourage you, as as this song of response, come. You can spend time at these steps. You don't need to tell me, but tell Him. I'm ready for something new and for something exciting here at Highland Hills.
and I want to be part of it. I'm going to pray, and I encourage you, don't leave here without being right with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you so much that you are a God of doing new things, that, that you are ready to, to mix things up, that you are ready um, to do things that we've never dreamed of. And don't allow us as a church to become a Plato church and just dried up and brittle and not willing to change, or even a rubber band church who will only stretch but just enough because we don't want to lose anything we have. Help us be a silly buddy church and a church ready to follow your leadership and guidance, ready to just listen to your voice speak into our hearts, into our lives, and send us out into this lost world with the only message that people need to hear, the good news about your son. Father, help us be your church in this new year. Help us be faithful to your call and to your mission. And bless us as we see lives changed, as we see cities change, maybe, who knows. But Lord, let us be a part of your mission and help us be faithful in doing whatever we're called to. And I just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.